Hey, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you here. Thank you for being here today. What a great day of worshiping the Lord so far, far and, and just being together. My name's Dan, if I haven't met you yet, and uh, thank you for coming, really. Um, just a great day to be together. And if you have, have your Bible with you, please open with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 1. I'm having fun preaching through this. This is a fun passage of scripture to, to, to sit in and, and saturate in. This is fun. Um, this week I was reading a book by Pastor Brian Chapel, and he was describing this beautiful section of highway near St. Louis. Has anybody here been to St. Louis or driven, or driven around St. Louis? Just curious, okay. So you may disagree or agree with him, I don't know. But apparently along this part of the highway, they've planted lots and lots of pear trees. And when all of these trees are blossoming in the springtime, all that you can see as you drive along this road are gorgeous white pear trees. And I guess it's just an incredible view and they're in full blossom. And what's interesting is, is that these pear trees were only planted on one section of the highway and only on one side of the highway. So why would the state only plant trees on part of the highway and how did they decide where to plant these beautiful trees? Well, the state planted all those beautiful trees to block something. Immediately behind all those pear trees is a state prison. The state planted those trees along that stretch of highway to cover up the razor wire fences and thick concrete walls that keep prisoners locked up. And the disguise of these picturesque pear trees hiding that ugly place of bondage symbolizes an important spiritual reality. Many people put on disguises to make it appear to everyone else that they are thriving and satisfied and free and their life is beautiful when in reality they are empty and unsatisfied and spiritually locked up. The power of sin has enslaved humanity. Regardless of how godly or ungodly our parents were, regardless of which state or country we were born in, regardless of which religion we were born into, regardless of which ethnicity or culture we belong to, God tells us in his word that we were all born in bondage to sin. And so because of sin, we all have a predisposition to rebel against God. Because our wills are prisoners to sin, we naturally will to disobey God. Here's how Jesus explained it to some Jewish believers who took great pride in being descendants of Abraham. John 8, 31 to 35 says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. They answered him, 
Well, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So Jesus said that everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. And according to God's word, who practices sin? Everyone. (laughs) Therefore, who by nature is a slave to sin? Everyone. And Jesus said that slaves to sin don't dwell in the house of the Lord for eternity. Only God's sons and daughters dwell in his house for eternity. And so how in the world can we no longer be slaves to sin and instead be God's sons and daughters? Well, like we looked at in my last sermon, God must adopt us as his sons and daughters. So what exactly did God do to do that? How did he adopt us? What was legally required of God to make us his legally adopted children? Redemption was required. In order to be at peace with our maker, in order to know God personally, in order to be adopted into his family, in order to be at friendship with God, God must redeem us with an exceedingly powerful redemption that decisively and forever frees us from sin. Okay, so this is what we're gonna get into today as we look at Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Before we read this, let's ask the Lord to help us. Lord, we thank you for this word. Holy Spirit, we ask that you would illuminate this, give us eyes to see um, the, the, the spiritual truth of this passage. We just ask that you would teach us. We're totally dependent on you, God. We need you, God, to to help us now, believers and non-believers alike. We just ask for your spirit to work in power now as we read your word of truth. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so let's let's, uh, read Ephesians 1, 1 to 14. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, Grace to you and peace from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. 
Paul wants us to praise God for all of this. That's very clear. God wants us to praise God for all of this. And in this passage, uh, what we see is this, this whole thing, like I mentioned before, uh, one to four, uh, excuse me, three to 14, is one long sentence in Greek. So we've kind of split it up in English to make it easier to understand. But Paul is sharing all of these interdependent, intertwined theological blessings. And essentially, he's describing the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places that believers have now in Jesus Christ. And his command to us is, in light of these things, praise God, right? So I've summarized this passage 3 to 14 this way. Praise the Lord for loving us immensely by blessing us lavishly with his glorious grace through Jesus Christ. And so far we've explored what this passage says about God's predestinating love and what it says about God's adopting love. And this morning we're going to talk about God's redeeming love. And I want to explore this topic of God's redeeming love by answering three questions. First, what is redemption and why do you need it? What is redemption and why do you need it? Second, how do you get redemption? How do you get redemption? And third, how does redemption change you? How does redemption change you? Let's start with number one. What is redemption and why do you need it? At its most basic level, to redeem means to buy back. To buy back. Redemption involves making a payment. And a fuller definition of redeem is to free someone from slavery by paying a ransom. That's what redeem means. To free someone from slavery by paying a ransom. According to the Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, in the ancient secular world, redemption was the money paid to buy back prisoners of war. You paid a redemption to buy back prisoners of war. It was also, redemption was also the money paid to free a slave. It was a redemption. And so for you to have redemption means that you have freedom because somebody else paid a ransom to free you from imprisonment and or from slavery. And the message of the whole Bible before, during, and after Jesus' life on earth is that our rebellion as humans against God has made us slaves to sin and we desperately need God to pay our ransom because we cannot free ourselves. We do not have the ability to free ourselves from sin. We do not have the currency to pay the ransom that is required that holds us in bondage to the curse of sin. In Romans 6, 17 to 18, Paul writes to the Christians in Rome, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Paul says that before God redeemed Christians, we were all slaves of sin, along with everyone else. 
And humanity came under this curse of sin when we rebelled against God in the Garden of Eden. And because of this, because we're under the curse of sin, we are also under the curse of death because sin leads to death. And this is why we all experience destruction, which leads to death, and death. And deterioration leads to death, right? Our bodies are deteriorating. This did not exist before humanity was under the curse of sin. We are also under the curse of spiritual death, which is eternal separation from God after this life and in this life. And after this life, eternal torment apart from God in this place that Jesus calls hell. Hell is a place where there is no more hope for redemption. There is no hope in hell. So God gave you breath this morning. He put oxygen in your lungs this morning. He made your brain work this morning and your heart beat right now so that you could be here today in order for you to hear that you still have hope to be redeemed by God. You do not have to live as a slave to sin anymore. And in a few minutes, we'll talk about how to receive God's redemption. But first, we need to see how being a slave to sin also makes us slaves to other things. To God's law, to the devil, to fear, and to death. 1 Corinthians 15, 56 says, The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is is the law. And Galatians 3.10 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So the law refers to every command the Lord has ever given to humanity. They include God's creation, God's uh, God's creation commands, uh, the Ten Commandments, all the ceremonial and civil and moral laws given to Israel. They include the commands given to us by Jesus while he lived on earth. They include the commands given us uh, by God through the writers of the New Testament. Together, God's laws, God's commands make up God's law. And God's law is good. It's holy. And every command God has given to us is for our good as individuals and for our good as a human race. And so as long as you perfectly obey God's law, never fail at any point, then you have nothing to worry about, okay? You don't have to worry about Satan or sin or hell or death. The problem is that the only one who has ever perfectly obeyed God's law is God, God's son, Jesus Christ. The rest of us have broken God's law over and over and over again. And God's law is, it's, it's constantly revealing our fallenness to us and to God. And we're in bondage to God's law. Now, in addition to that, sin also makes us prisoners to the devil and to fear and to death. Hebrews 2, 14 to 15 says, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, Jesus himself, likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death 
were subject to lifelong slavery. So because humanity is enslaved to sin, we're also enslaved to the devil and to fear of death and to death itself and to God's law. The curse of sin has made us slaves to this multifaceted orb of tortuous and and life-sucking, hope-stealing slave masters. And what's crazy about this, what's crazy about the power of sin over us is that it has so warped our wills that now in our human nature, we, we do not even want God or his good commands. Instead, what we want in our flesh is to continue to want the sin that enslaves us. We continue to want the, the sin that slaves us, enslaves us to these slave masters. That's why Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 says, and you were dead in the, tres- in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. One of the thing, I think one of the things that we can get real quick from that is, you know, Paul continues to repeat, just like we all were, or the rest of mankind, part of his purpose there is to humble all of us, Christians are not better than anybody. (laughs) We're just forgiven sinners. So we should be very humble. So Christian, the question is, as you look at a passage like Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, do you believe that this was true about you? Do you believe you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked? That you were um, by nature children of wrath? And then non-Christians here, who I'm so glad you're here. (laughs) Do you believe this is true about you? Because you must believe these things in order to see your need for redemption. Because if you don't believe you're a slave to sin, then you don't believe you need redemption. Why would you need God to redeem you from it? But if you want to be at peace with God, if you want to be friends with God like Humanity is is intended to be, if if you want to go to heaven with God when you die, if you want to be freed from these things that God says you're enslaved to, Satan and sin and hell and death, then you must believe first that you need redemption. You must believe you can't free yourself from these slave masters. And I don't say this sarcastically, I don't think, but I think it would be interesting if you it's interesting to sit down with people who see this in God's word and and they don't see the need for redemption. What is your game plan to free yourself from these things? Or is it just to pretend that you're not enslaved to these things? Um, By God's grace, the Holy Spirit convicts us that we need God to free us by paying our ransom. We need God to redeem us. And that brings us to our second question, which is, how do we get redemption? How do we get redemption? Well, let's look closely at the passage. Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 says this. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So the first thing to notice is that Paul closely connects redemption with the forgiveness of our trespasses. 
He says, in him we have redemption through his blood. And then he further elaborates on redemption by calling it the forgiveness of our trespasses. So I agree with Brian Chappell that God's redemption has two aspects to it. Think of redemption as kind of having two parts to it. Ransom and remission. Redemption has a ransom and remission, and they go together. Um, because sin makes us slaves, we need God to free us from slavery by paying our ransom. And at the same time, because sin makes us unrighteous trespassers who are guilty of crossing the boundaries God has set for us, then we need God to remit or to forgive our trespasses. So to remit something means to cancel a debt or to remove a penalty. Okay? To remit means to cancel a debt or to remove a penalty. And God says that remission of sin, it's interesting, he talks about remission specifically, is only possible through the shedding of blood. That's how ugly sin is. That the only way to be re, have sin remitted is for blood to be shed. In other words, death. Through the death of one thing in place of another. God says in Hebrews 9.22, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness or remission of sins. And this is why God graciously established the sacrificial system before Jesus came to earth, that through the daily sacrifices of many animals, our sins might be temporarily forgiven as we trust in God. But as the book of Hebrews also testifies, even the slaughter of hundreds of thousands of animals, pure, without blemish animals, can not entirely and eternally forgive our sins. Animal sacrifices do not have the power also to give our hearts a desire for God. They, animal sacrifices don't change people's hearts. In fact, what you see throughout the Old Testament is animal sacrifices are warped even, and people say, oh, sweet, well, I want sin, so what I can do is make a sacrifice and then just keep sinning, which goes against the whole point. God says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. I want your heart. I don't want you to keep sacrificing things because you don't want me to have your heart. <laughs> and so this is why the Old Testament sacrificial system could, could never reconcile us to God. It could never take enemies and make them at peace with each other. It couldn't make us at peace with God. We needed a better sacrifice whose blood forgives our sins and remits our penalty forever. We need a better sacrifice that would actually have the power to change us, to transform us into new creations with God-honoring hearts and wills that love God now. And so redemption is both a ransom from slavery and the remission of our trespasses, the canceling of our debt, the removal of sins, penalty of death and hell. Now what's interesting is that throughout the history of humanity, across all cultures, people have always known that we need eternal redemption. That this is what we need. We need redemption. 
Romans 2.15 says that God has written his law on every human heart. And so human beings then, in, 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 in trying to figure out how to get redemption, have created all sorts of methods to try to obtain God's redemption through all sorts of religions, through all sorts of human philosophies and reasoning, through all sorts of good works. And even self-proclaimed Christians have created their own systems of human works that they, must, they, they, they feel they must do to receive redemption or to, and or to retain God's redemption. And these religious systems tell people, you must pray this many times for redemption. You must wash your hands in this water for redemption. You must recite this mantra over and over again for redemption. You must perform this sign for redemption. You must come to this place for redemption. You must do this penitential work for redemption. You must give this thing for redemption. You must punish yourself this way for redemption. And the ironic thing is that by doing these actions for redemption, you're not believing or exhibiting what God tells you to believe and to exhibit. That redemption comes not from us, but from Christ alone through faith. All of those human methods require doing things for God rather than completely trusting in what God did for us. And we can only receive redemption that way through what God has done for us. And we can only retain or keep our redemption by the eternal power of what God has done for us. So what, God, what, what has he done? What has God done to redeem us? How has God both paid our ransom and remitted our trespasses? Well, let's see the answer in the passage from today. Let's look at, first, look at the, if you're in the ESV, look at the last prepositional phrase in verse six, which says, in the beloved. God's redemption is found only in the beloved. And the beloved is God's beloved, his one and only son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. So that's where it is found, in the beloved. And then he says it again, immediately. The first two words of verse seven tell us where to find God's redemption, in him. In the beloved son, Jesus Christ. In him we have redemption. And then he tells us a third time, in him we have redemption through what? Through his blood. Him, him, him. It's through Jesus' blood. It's through Jesus' death. You get that? It's not through your bloodshed that you have redemption. It's not through your praying or your church attending or your financial giving or your Bible reading or your philanthropy or your sacrifices that you are redeemed. Those are good things, but they do not contribute one iota to your ransom or to the remission of your sin. The only way to have your ransom paid is with the blood of Jesus. The only way to be freed from slavery to sin, it says, is through the blood of Jesus. The only way to have your trespasses remitted is through the blood of Jesus. The only way to have your debt paid 
and your penalty removed is through the blood of Jesus. That is it. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not you, not anybody else, not your parents, not your spouse, not your job, not your pay stub. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, period. Redemption is why Jesus came to earth, and redemption is what Jesus accomplished for his people. Okay, so how exactly did he do this? How exactly did he accomplish this redemption? I didn't understand this. I was thinking about this last night. I remember as a teenager hearing about the gospel a little bit in the church I grew up with, and it did not make sense to me, Jesus dying on the cross. It didn't make sense to me. I just didn't, I couldn't grasp it. Because I was thinking, I wasn't there. I didn't kill him. I wasn't, what, this doesn't make sense. This is what we have to understand. On the cross... Jesus took the sin of his people. Sin as the curse, as a general law, and also sins that you've done and that you will do. Jesus took that sin, and when he was hung on the cross in space and time history, he put sin into his body, all of your sin. And he became the sin that curses us. He actually became a curse. That's why Galatians 3.13 says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And having become the curse, the curse of sin, Jesus died. And in his death of his physical body, our curse died too. Our bondage to sin died. At that moment, Jesus broke our chains to sin. Jesus accomplished redemption for us. Amen. That's awesome. So what does that tell you then about how God feels about you? He loves you. He has died for you because he loves you. And so how do you respond to that love? God says, receive my love in Jesus Christ. Don't reject it. Trust in God's love for you. Don't doubt God's love for you. You've got to entrust yourself to God and rest yourself entirely upon Jesus and the grace, the unmerited favor of God toward you. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 to 8 says this, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of whose grace? His grace, which who lavished upon us? He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. So the reason we can have redemption from sin is not because of our goodwill toward God. It's because of God's goodwill toward us. God grants redemption through Christ's blood because God is rich in what? Grace. And he has, past tense, lavished his grace upon us in all wisdom and insight through the blood of Jesus Christ. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord for loving us immensely by blessing us lavishly with his glorious grace through Jesus Christ and his blood. Listen to what Jesus said about this, about, about being a ransom for us. In Mark 10, 45, for even the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom 
for many. Jesus, the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Why is that verse mind-blowing? Because, well, first of all, Jesus is the king. When kings come to town, they don't come to serve. They come to be served. But Jesus' kingdom is upside down. I mean, he's the most humble king we've ever known. And he's the king of kings. And he says, I came to serve, not to be served. And I came to give my life as a ransom. 1 Timothy 2, 5 to 6 says this. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And then 1 Peter 1, 17 to 21. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. You, now listen, you were ransomed not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He, Jesus, was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So just as Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world as the sinless Lamb of God who would ransom and remit people from their sin, so also God's people, because of God's grace, were foreknown by God before he even created us as those Christ would ransom, those whose sin he would lay down his life for to forgive and to remit. Only this, only the perfect, righteous, holy blood of God can pay our ransom and free us from sin and from God's wrath. Now also, only the perfect, righteous, and holy blood of God can cancel our debt of sin. Only God's blood can remove the penalty of sin from us. Let's see what, how scripture talks about that. On the night before he died, Jesus ordained the, La- the Lord's Supper, communion, which we celebrate first Sunday of every month. Matthew 26, 27 to 28 says, and he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness or remission of sins. Colossians 1, 13 to 14. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness Transferred us and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Colossians 2, 13 to 15. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. (laughs) He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. 
And then Romans 3, 23 to 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. And how do we receive it? To be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And praise the Father, praise the Son Jesus, praise the Holy Spirit for doing this for us. <laughs> for providing this divine, self-sacrificing, holy blood-shedding, debt-canceling, chain-breaking redemption for us. For us. <laughs> no one's done that for us except God. Wow, praise him. Okay, now let's get to the third question, which is how does this change us? How does redemption change us? Well, it's through hearing this good news. It's through the proclamation of the good news of this redemption that God's children first hear of God's love for them and then are transformed by him and then they trust in Jesus and he empowers them to love them back. Jesus Christ, the holy God of the universe in human flesh, allowed himself to be wrongfully arrested for you. He allowed himself to be condemned for you. He allowed himself to be tortured for you. He allowed himself to be indwelt with sin for you. He allowed himself to be put to death for you by the hands of lawless men. How could you ever think or say God doesn't love you? Or that... He doesn't want you. And so through the power of God the Holy Spirit, one of the things Paul wants us to do, and he says this over and over in Ephesians, and we're gonna keep getting it, he wants us to realize how much God loves us. He wants to realize the depth of God's love for us, and then he wants us to trust it. He wants us to trust in God's love for us, and by the Spirit's power, he's gonna change us through that. It changes when we realize, when we believe God loves us, and when we trust him. And when he gives us a desire to bring him glory now, with this limited, I don't know how long I have on earth, this limited whatever, day I have left, week, month I don't know but it changes us it changes our goals for our time on earth it changes the direction of our lives it changes what we want to accomplish during our time here because you can't accomplish everything there's a lot of goals out there you just can't do it all it changes how we want to use our time it changes what we value Tony Merida writes, think about this, in Luke 7, we read of an unknown woman who poured out expensive oil to anoint Jesus in adoration. And the Pharisees, who were too self-righteous to seek Jesus for forgiveness, grumbled at that. Jesus said she was lavish in her adoration because she realized how much she had been forgiven. 
You hear that? She realized. You just start thinking about a few of those sins you've done and think about those being indwelt in the body of Christ and put to death for you. You realize, thank you God for doing this for me. Thank you. Those who don't realize how much they've been forgiven don't praise Jesus. You don't have a song to sing if you don't believe Jesus did this for you. And so we too, like this woman, should love Jesus greatly because we believe I have been forgiven much. Do we praise God like that? Not just with our words. Do we give him our all joyfully? Do we give him attention? Do we care about his commands at all? We say, God, I want to follow you, Jesus. I want to know how you want me to live. Do we structure our life in a way so that we can give our all to God? Does it it blow your mind that Jesus purchased you? He bought you. He made a transaction so that you are now a slave to God's righteousness and not to sin. Wow. And you're more than a slave, the Bible says. You're a beloved son or daughter of God, united with God's beloved son, and you're now an heir of God and of his glorious kingdom. This is incredible news. Galatians 4, 4 4-7 says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. God bought you with his blood, Christian. That means he owns you. And he's not letting you go. And we'll talk more about that in a few weeks when we look at what the passage says about God's sealing love. But do you realize that if you trust God to redeem you, then you're not your own anymore? Your life doesn't belong to you anymore. Your life doesn't belong to sin anymore. Your life, every part of your life, is God's now because he bought you with his blood. Consider these three passages. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 to 20. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. So the new desire and the goal of the person who's bought by God with the price of the blood of his son is now to glorify God in our bodies and with our bodies and with everything in our lives. So we, we don't obey God to retain or to keep our redemption. We obey God to thank and to glorify him for our redemption. Okay? We can't obey God by our own strength even. We need daily to be praying, you guys, that he would give us the will, the desire, and the power to obey him for his glory. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
if it's God who works in you, we need more God power. <laughs> so we live lives of abiding or dependency upon Christ. This is why Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And to the elders of the church in Ephesus, Acts 20, 28, Paul says this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. So praise God that he not only redeemed us, but that this redemption is an everlasting redemption because he obtained us with his own holy blood, which is never corrupted. John Newton was a Christian man who, who played an instrumental role in abolishing the slave trade in the 18th century. And he wrote many hymns, including Amazing Grace. And after he became a Christian, he realized um, that God's commands in Scripture were no longer at odds with what he most wanted. To obey God and to bring him glory by using every aspect of his life to tell the world how awesome Jesus is. Newton wrote a hymn entitled, We Were Once Like You. And of, uh, one of the verses says this, we serve God now, not Satan. Our pleasure and our duty, though opposite before, since we have seen his beauty, are joined to part no more. It is our highest pleasure, no less than duty's call, to love him beyond measure and serve him with our all. See, only God can change us through faith in his son so much that loving and obeying God is now both our duty and our pleasure. I just encourage you guys, stay in the word this week. And if you don't know how to do that, talk to me or talk to one of the elders. It's okay. We'd love to tell you maybe a place to start if you're not in God's word. Um, but we need that to learn how do we love the Lord? How do we love our neighbors? How do we do it? It's not by, well, I think God would do this. No, that doesn't work. He says, how does God say it's done? I need to learn, I need to be discipled by Jesus. And so we learn from Jesus's word. And I just encourage you to ask your Abba Father and the Holy Spirit to give you power to love and to obey him and a desire that fills you with joy to do this. And not one out of just mere duty, but a delight in Jesus Christ because he's your redeemer. Praise God. Would you please stand with me? I'll conclude our time. <clears throat> Let me read this passage from the book of Revelation, which is funny, John, uh, Dan Olson read some of this last week, and it goes along with this passage too. This is the Apostle Paul's part of his uh, record of the vision that God gave him about how God will be worshipped when he returns, when Jesus returns. Re Revelation 5, 8 to 14. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures 
And the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time we've had together to open your word as a corporate family and to be encouraged uh, by your spirit and the truth of your word. Thank you, God, for being our redemption. Thank you for giving us Jesus to be our ransom and to remit our sin, to forgive us, Lord. Thank you for canceling our debt Thank you for breaking our chains to sin and Satan and hell and death for us. Thank you for having compassion and grace and mercy upon us. Help us, Lord. Empower us. Give us desire now to love you with all that we have, with all that you've given us, with all that we're stewards with, of. Um, help us, Lord, to, as, as we read your word, see, man, I... I want to use this part of my life and this part of my life and this part of my life and this relationship and this thing that I own. I want to use it all to point the world to how awesome Jesus Christ is. And God, we lift up our loved ones, we lift up our neighbors, we lift up our country and our world to you that you would redeem your people through the proclamation of the gospel and through the love of Christ as we show it to the world and as we tell it to the world. Thank you, God, for this body of believers that we have here at Cedar Home and Stanwood that we can be together and, and celebrate these things. Thank you that we get to, this Tuesday, serve others through prayer and worship you through prayer and that the, the prayers of the righteous person are powerful and effective, you tell us. Thank you, God, that we get to do this. Please help us today, Lord. Convict us of sin. Help us to preach truth, the truth of the gospel to ourselves. Help us to remember, God, that we're not saved by works. We're not, we don't stay saved by works. We stay saved by the power of the blood of Christ, period. Thank you, Jesus. We love you and we pray this in your name, amen.